following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. When I was growing up, I was a devout, and I mean a devout, basketball and baseball card collector. I think I have over 10,000 cards, over, over 800 of Michael Jordan alone. And I wasn't just a casual collector. I had a strategy. I was going to collect these cards and save these cards, and these things were going to put my kids through college. The problem, it turns out, is that just about every other boy in the 80s and 90s was thinking the same thing. So because of all the supply, which had to keep up with the demand, very few cards from that era are truly rare and therefore valuable. The collection in which I invested so much time and energy and adolescent money isn't going to fund much of anything. Now, when it comes to sports cards, thankfully, the stakes are low. But in our passage this morning, with infinitely higher stakes, the, the Apostle Paul invites us in to see the most disruptive paradigm shift he ever experienced. See, he too thought he had amassed a treasure, a, a treasure that would impress his peers, that would even impress God. But he too has now come to see that the supposed treasure won't fund anything. In fact, as he bluntly puts it, what I used to think was treasure, I've now come to see is just trash. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, as Paul awaits the outcome of his trial in Rome, he's writing to a congregation he helped start 
10 years earlier over in Philippi in northern Greece. And in the first two chapters, he's revealed his affection for them. We've heard his beating heart for these believers in Philippi and also his ambition to live a poured out life, a poured out life for the good of others. And he's held up examples of two ordinary folks who are doing this, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as well as the ultimate example of the Lord Jesus himself. Here's what I think is the main idea of Philippians 3 verses 1 to 11. And and if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, the main idea of the passage will also be the main idea of this message. Here's what I think is the main idea. There is only one resume that will win you acceptance into God's presence. And it's not yours. There is only one resume that will win you acceptance into God's presence. And it's not yours. We'll think about this in three points as we step through these verses. First, when the clock is wrong. Second, when DIY religion fails. And third, when losing is gain. When the clock is wrong, we'll see that in verses 1 to 3. When DIY, that is do-it-yourself religion, fails, verses 4 to 6. And when losing is gain, verses 7 to 11. First, when the clock is wrong. Verse 1, further, my brothers and sisters, Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Paul's likely referring to things that he taught them in person back in Philippi, and he's saying, hey, don't begrudge repetition. Don't think that you have graduated from your need to be reminded of the most basic things. Martin Luther was once asked, why do you preach the gospel every single Sunday? And he replied, because my people need it every single week. This verse is a word in season, I think, especially for us as a new church, a young church, because new churches are, are often tempted to have the wrong mentality when they get off the ground. In coming to, into existence, how do they think of themselves? In coming into existence, they think of themselves as coming onto the market and therefore needing to distinguish themselves from the competition. I've actually preached quite a bit, I think, in our first year as a church against this kind of self-serving spirit. So I'm not going to belabor the point here other than to note that it is a real danger in American Christianity to have this kind of incessant thirst for novelty. There's a passing comment in Acts 17 about those gathered at Mars Hill in Athens, and it's not a compliment. Acts 17, 21 The people spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so in a culture that was enamored, enchanted with what was new, Paul didn't apologize for returning to well-trod ground, and I don't either. He wrote the same things to the Philippians for their good, and I preach the same things to you, beloved, week in and week out for your good. 
We will never graduate from the most important things. Let's pray and let's remind one another and let's beware of ever growing bored with the basics. Paul's tone then shifts dramatically in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. When he says dogs, he's not talking about his friend. This is a group of Jews, sometimes called Judaizers, who show up throughout the New Testament as opponents of grace. He calls them false believers in Galatians 2. Specifically, this group is arguing that Gentiles, in order to become Christians, have to first become Jews. That is, they have to adopt, they have to embrace and adopt the so-called boundary markers of Judaism, food laws, Sabbath keeping, and most prominently, circumcision. And in a graphic play on words, Paul says these people so emphasize circumcision that they've taken something delicate and have mutilated its true meaning. Do you see how, do you see what his strategy here is? He is turning the tables on them. He's saying, you take such pride in your ethnic pedigree that you look at all the non-Jewish Gentile peoples of the world and think that they are unclean dogs. Well, don't you realize that in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and the grace that he offers, you are every bit as unclean as them. You are outsiders to the covenant community because you are strangers to gospel grace. And so Paul sounds the warning here. Watch out. Watch out for these mutilators of grace. Verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Who put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul's going even further here in verse 3 and saying, not only are the circumcision police wrong on the issue, but we are the ones who actually understand it theologically. We are the true circumcision. And that's what's at stake here. It's not about medicine or biology. This is about theology. Now, it may be worth taking just a moment here, given that we're named River City Baptist Church to explain how a church like ours understands this theological concept, circumcision. It's it's a massive theological concept in the Bible. Because you you may or may not realize that the case for baptizing babies, evangelical, covenantal, infant baptism, the case for that has everything to do with this, with the way that one understands how the various parts of Scripture fit together, and specifically how the covenants in the Bible unfold and cohere. Now hear me clearly. Hear me clearly. Our Presbyterian and Anglican friends baptize babies not because They don't take the Bible seriously, but because they do. I'm the lead pastor of River City Baptist Church, and I want you to know that our evangelical, Anglican, and Presbyterian friends practice what they do because they take the Bible 
seriously. That is, they're trying to understand how the covenants in Scripture fit together and what it means for today. They see in these pages a clear parallel between circumcision as the sign and seal of entrance into the old covenant, which was applied to whom? Israelites and their children. So they see a parallel between circumcision, the the sign of entrance into the old covenant, and baptism, the sign and seal of entrance into the new covenant, which should be applied to Christians and their children. It's a theologically sophisticated argument. Obviously, I'm not finally persuaded by it, but it's a theologically sophisticated and careful argument, and I have little patience for Baptists who just dismiss it and scoff at at it as if it's some ridiculous conclusion. It's not. See, there are two errors we, we can fall into here. On the one hand, some Baptistic churches can act like circumcision and baptism are, are just unrelated. There's no relation there. And I think sometimes it can, they can act like that in reaction to this view held by our Presbyterian and Anglican friends that says that circumcision and baptism are essentially directly parallel. And again, just so I'm representing what others believe as fairly as I can, our Presbyterian and Anglican friends would say that just as Israelites applied the old covenant sign to their babies, so Christians should apply the new covenant sign to our babies. That's the argument. Infant circumcision is fulfilled by infant baptism. Now hear me. Again, I do think circumcision and baptism are connected. I'm not disputing that there's a parallel there. Circumcision was the sign of entrance into the old covenant community. Baptism is the sign of entrance into the new. But here's the key difference. Here's the key difference. And the difference has everything to do, or I'm sorry, the difference has, I should say, less to do, less to do with the meaning of the two signs than it does with the makeup of the two communities. I'll explain what I mean. The difference has to do less with the meaning of the two signs than it does with the makeup of the two communities. So to use an analogy, if circumcision was the front door into God's old covenant people and baptism is the front door into God's new covenant people, the church, the difference is not so much between the doors, but between the living rooms. And in the new covenant living room, according to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and Colossians 2, the new covenant living room is designed to be filled with only those who know the Lord. United to Jesus, the church is the new Israel, which means, track with me here, which means that it is the extension. What is the church the extension of? Not Israel as a whole, but the extension of the remnant. The the church is the extension, you could say, not of the ethnically defined multitude, but of the spiritually defined subset. So to put it as simply as I can, circumcision was to physical birth what baptism is to spiritual birth. 
circumcision was to physical birth, what baptism now is to spiritual birth. The qualification for circumcision was being born. The qualification for baptism is being born again. So so do you see where the direct parallel starts to crack apart? I I just find it inconsistent. Again, I, I respect the conclusion, but I find it finally inconsistent to say that just as physical Israelites circumcised their physical children, so spiritual Israelites should baptize their physical children. So what does this mean for our practice at RCBC? It means we are to baptize only those that we're convinced have experienced heart circumcision, the new birth, the miracle to which fleshly circumcision pointed all along like a sign on the side of a highway. The theological purpose of Old Covenant circumcision was to point beyond itself to its fulfillment in Christ, first and foremost, and in those united to him by faith. Last night, we adjusted our clocks, or our smartphones did did it for us. We adjusted our clocks for daylight savings. And Paul is insisting that to live under the demands of the Old Covenant, to now still be living under the demands of the old covenant is to turn back another clock, the clock of redemptive history to before the coming of Christ. And he says, do not do that. Beware of a wrong clock. Number two, when DIY religion fails, when DIY religion fails, At the end of verse 3, Paul says that true believers, unlike the the Judaizers, true believers put no confidence in the flesh. And then he adds, verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I'm sorry, I have more. He's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If I don't put confidence in the flesh, then no one should because no one has a spiritual resume like mine. Get a load of this, Paul says. And then he proceeds to beat them at their own game by listing seven virtues or seven merits to his name. Seven, by the way, is the biblical number of perfection. The first four have to do with Paul's religious pedigree, and the last three have to do with his moral performance. The first four have to do with his pedigree. The last three have to do with his performance. Let's just quickly look at them. First, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. (laughs) Literally, I'm an eighth dayer. I'm not a convert to Judaism. My credentials stretch all the way back to my birth. Second, I'm of the people of Israel. This is no small honor. Here's what Paul says in Romans 9, 4, and 5 about the unique privileges that Israel enjoys. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, that is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. He's of the people of Israel. Third, he's not just of the people of Israel, he's specifically of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's parents probably named him Saul after Israel's first king, who emerged from the line of Benjamin. And in fact, out of all 12 tribes in Israel, only two remained faithful to the house of David. Only two remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty, Judah and Benjamin. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is not just another way of saying I'm a I'm a Jew. He's already said that. He's saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is a cultural claim. He's saying, I'm as culturally pure as they come. I'm not a Hellenistic Jew. Remember in Acts chapter 6, when the church in Jerusalem has Hellenistic Jews, that is Greek-speaking, Greek-culture Jews, and Hebraic Jews. Paul's saying, I- I'm not a convert from the Greco-Roman world. I didn't grow up speaking Greek, the language of pagans. I grew up speaking Aramaic and reading my Bible in Hebrew. Paul's family took their faith so seriously that they even sent him to Jerusalem at great expense to study under one of the most renowned rabbis at the time, a guy named Gamaliel. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Fifth, in regard to the law, he says, I'm a Pharisee, which is to say that in Judaism, He was a Navy SEAL. The very name Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word meaning separated one. This was an elite group, a small elite group who was widely esteemed, widely esteemed. I mean, we today kind of look down on the Pharisees, but they were not looked down on in first century Israel. They were esteemed for their strict, disciplined adherence and devotion to the law of God. And speaking of devotion, sixth, Paul says, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. Not just I disliked the church. No, I persecuted them. He channeled his ambitions towards stamping out anything that might spoil the purity of Judaism. And this new Jesus movement was certainly seeming like it was going to do that. So Paul, Acts 7, we see him presiding over the murder of Stephen, the, the church's first martyr. Acts 8, he's going from house to house, dragging Jesus followers to prison. Acts 9, we read that Paul is breathing murderous threats against them. Nobody, Paul is saying, nobody can compete, as the young people would say today, nobody can compete with these receipts. Nobody Nobody tried to exterminate the vermin of Jesus' followers as vehemently as I. And number seven, as for righteousness based on the law, he says, I was faultless. That doesn't mean sinless. But what it means is that even when he had sinned, he'd responded with exacting precision according to the sacrificial system of the law. In his book, The New Reformation, Shai Lin, uh, who we had the privilege of 
posting here in November, Shailen summarizes this list in Philippians 3 by noting the breadth of advantages, the breadth of advantages Paul enjoyed. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's religious advantage. Of the people of Israel, ethnic advantage. Of the tribe of Benjamin, ancestral advantage. A Hebrew of Hebrews, cultural advantage. As to the law, a Pharisee, educational advantage. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church, temperamental advantage. As for law-based righteousness, faultless, moral advantage. This is a stunning resume. First century Jews would have assumed that angels in glory were crowding around a resume like this in awe. If anyone on earth could win acceptance to heaven based on pedigree or performance, Paul is saying, if anyone could win acceptance, could win entrance into heaven with a resume, it would be me. Point three, he has more to say. When losing is gain. When losing is gain. Verse 7, but. But. So rather than making it through verse 6 and then just dropping the mic, he does the opposite. He says, but whatever were gains to me. Whatever were gains to me. I now consider loss for the sake of of Christ. This is a staggering statement. Paul was born right, raised right, he's lived right, and now he has the audacity to say that his whole strategy has been wrong? It's not like he just says something tamer like, I now consider these things less important because I need to make room on the table for Jesus. No, he says, I now consider them loss, utter loss in light of the beauty of what someone else has done. There is only room for one resume on this table, and it's not mine. Notice he's using accounting language. He's saying that a major recession has hit his spiritual bank account, and it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. Because he's finally realized that every deposit he'd been making was actually a withdrawal. All the money he thought was coming in was actually going out. Everything he was counting as profit with God is actually loss. As Don Carson simply puts it, for Paul, everything in the credit column has been transferred to the debt column. Christ alone stands in the credit column. Verse 8, what's more, I consider everything a loss because, here's the reason, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You're going to have a hard time finding a more beautiful phrase in the Bible. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. And this is not just a throwaway statement. He had lost all things. He'd lost the companionship of family, the respect of friends, the adulation of peers, 
He'd gone from hunting down Christians to being hunted down. I mean, lest we doubt the magnitude of what Paul had really given up for King Jesus, just listen to this autobiographical report that he gives us in 2 Corinthians 11. In context, he's he's defending his ministry against the claims of false apostles. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak. This man had utterly lost status and standing and safety. What had he lost for Christ? The better question is what had he not lost? And yet, he could not be more thrilled with the exchange Because in losing those things, he gained the greatest thing. In losing everything else that he held most dear, he gained the greatest thing. A personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul can now look at his treasure of a resume. The one into which angels long to look. The treasure of a resume and drop it in the trash can. Because his religious pedigree, his moral performance, he says, end of verse 8, I consider them garbage. It's literally the word for excrement. Why? Why does he consider it garbage? That I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but rather that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul is pulling back the curtain to let us see his mind and heart, what has become the governing, animating, driving ambition of his life. More than anything else, he now longs to be found righteous in heaven's sight, and he's discovered the secret. It's not by white-knuckling the ladder of moral performance in order to be good enough for God, because guess what? He did climb the ladder better than anyone else, only to find that it was leaning on the wrong building. No, He has come to see that the only way to be counted righteous before God is to trust in the one who came down the ladder for us. 
That's how Paul describes it in verse 9. It's a descending righteousness. It's a descending righteousness. It, quote, comes from God. And how is it accessed? How is it appropriated? On the basis, he says, of faith. Do you you see the night and day difference between works righteousness and gospel righteousness? Works righteousness comes from ourselves and is achieved through our resume. Gospel righteousness comes from Christ and is received through his. Some of you need to be found in Christ for the first time this morning. Some of you need to turn to Jesus for the first time this morning. You've been to church before. You've done moral things. You have a religious resume, but you have never dropped it in the trash can. You have yet to drop it in the trash can and run to Jesus Christ for mercy. I mean, you've been trying to bring something, contribute something, just to, to, to slide your resume across the table to God, hoping that it'll help to gain you entrance into heaven. But, oh, friend, the, the good news of the gospel is that while your resume is actually worthless in his sight, there is one person whose resume is priceless. And the wonder of grace is that God will give you that resume, the resume of Jesus, and evaluate evaluate you on its basis. He will give you the perfect resume of Jesus and evaluate your whole life on its basis if you will simply humble yourself enough to receive it. The Christian message is not get more Religious, get more religious. That's not what it is. Notice, this is very counterintuitive, but notice what made Paul a Christian wasn't that he changed his attitude toward his sins. It's that he changed his attitude toward his righteousness. See, so many of us think that salvation consists of this, making a big heaping pile of all of our bad deeds and running away from that pile into the arms of Jesus. That's the easy part. Salvation also means making a big heaping pile of your virtues, of your good deeds, the things you're proud of, and turning your back on that as well. We need to turn our back and flee two piles, our good deeds and our bad deeds and run into the arms of Jesus Christ and throw ourselves on him for mercy and trust that he will catch us and never let go. For those of you who who are believers and followers of Jesus, what might it look like for you to to put confidence in the flesh? Because that's what this is all about. Those Judaizers are putting their confidence in the flesh Paul is saying, hey, I used to do that. I had more reason to do that than anyone, but I don't anymore. What might it look like for you as an, as an individual Christian to put confidence in the flesh? Perhaps it would look like relying on your education 
or achievements in your career, or money you've saved or invested, or a relationship you've landed, or natural abilities you've cultivated. Or it could be more spiritual than that. I mean, it could be, it could be putting confidence in the, in the flesh could look like relying on your spiritual disciplines, on your faithfulness, not just to attend church, but to serve, to serve in church in order for God to be pleased with me. What might it look like for River City Baptist as a, as a church? What might it look like for us to put confidence in the flesh? What would it look like for us corporately? Though we believe and confess the gospel, what might it look like for us to violate the very spirit of this passage in the way we conduct ourselves could it perhaps look like dismissing or, at, or, or rolling our eyes at other gospel-preaching churches that aren't as ecclesiologically pure as we are? Legalism doesn't just threaten soteriology, that is one's understanding of salvation. Legalism can also spoil ecclesiology, our understanding and doctrine of the church. Even something as valuable as church polity, and stick around long enough and you'll find that I think it's pretty valuable, but even something like ecclesiology or church polity can become garbage if it distracts us from the most important and precious thing. It can become a damning distraction from the, if, from the gospel if it eclipses the brightness and the beauty of knowing and enjoying Christ Jesus as Lord. If we ever start to take ourselves as a church more seriously than we take him, if we start to gaze more carefully at our structures and the way we've set up things and the way we do church more than at his splendor, if we ever grow to cherish our practices more than we do his beauty, then we are little better than the rabbis of Paul's day, even if there is an evangelical spin on our Pharisaism. Oh, may the Lord guard us, RCBC, from ever ceasing to be most animated, most energized, most enamored by the love expressed to us in the poured out life of Jesus. And faith in this gospel, faith in this gospel it is not a kind of sterile thing, just a mechanical thing. No, it is living. It, it propels Paul forward. He's already talked about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, and then look at verse 10. He looks to the future. I want to know Christ. Yes, so, so this whole gospel of, of being right in the sight of a holy God through faith is putting wind in Paul's sails. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Can you say the same? Some of you will know the name Helen Rosevere. She was a medical missionary in the Congo who was kidnapped, imprisoned, tortured during that country's civil war in the 1960s. 
In fact, our brother Zane Pratt dates his call to missions to 1979 at a conference where he heard her speak, and it's the first time that Zane ever heard about unreached people groups, and it changed the trajectory of his life. Helen Rosevere, she tells the story of a winter night in 1945 when she was 20 years old, and she had just put her faith in Christ at a student retreat. And about half an hour later, one of the student leaders gave her a Bible, her first Bible as a brand new follower of Jesus. And inside the front cover, he simply wrote Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10. And he said, Helen, tonight you've entered into the first part of the verse. Knowing Christ. But this is only the beginning. There's a long journey ahead. My prayer is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of his resurrection and also, if the Lord is pleased, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. And the Lord was pleased to answer that leader's prayer for Helen. In some of her darkest moments in the decades to come, she would look back on that night, that winter night in 1945, and that moment and that inscription in her Bible and find ballast. Even as she reflected on her torture, she said, quote, God was offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings. And later she would write, God never uses a person greatly until he has wounded them deeply. God never uses a person greatly until he has wounded them deeply. The privilege he offers you is greater than the price you have to pay. The privilege is greater than the price. When you read about the earliest Christians and about modern day ones like Helen Rosevere, you and I, I think we tend to focus on how Christ shares in our sufferings. But so many of them focused, like Paul, on how we share in his. What a privilege. Well, in conclusion, one commentator summarizes this passage well by saying that Paul offers his spiritual autobiography as a case study. That's what this is. Paul offers his spiritual autobiography as a case study in two ways of trying to get right with God, credentials or Christ, credentials or Christ. And these two, you could call them routes to righteousness, trotting out your credentials or trusting in Christ, do not, Paul wants us to realize, do not lead to the same eternal destination. But when we do trust in Christ and in in his credentials, then we have firm ground to stand on when suffering comes. And getting to suffer for Christ, it it is a privilege. But the first privilege, the highest privilege that we will or will ever experience, we do or will ever experience as Christians is simply the privilege of knowing and enjoying Jesus as Savior and King and friend. And if God finds you in him, in Christ, 
trust in his righteousness, then you know what? You can face anything this week. I mean, what could possibly remove this bulletproof assurance? What could come your way? What possibly could come your way this week and rob you of this security? Even if you die, even if the worst happens, even if you die, you'll be with him. And if you don't, no matter what happens, he will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we confess our temptation to amass a resume in order to impress others and to slide across the table to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us all to drop those resumes that we're we're leaning on and relying on for our standing before you, to drop them in the garbage and to come to you with truly empty hands, empty hands of faith so that we can receive the mercy that you hold out to us in the gospel. It's in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.